0: Thank you, Chris. I appreciate it very much. Grateful to be here. This is my first time at this retreat, and I've heard great things, so I'm very excited. Now look out. I see a couple familiar faces, but most of you people I've never seen before in my life. So I thought maybe the best place to start is to give you a little bit of my background, Uh, maybe some perspective on who I am and where I come from, but also a launching pad for where I hope to go uh, tonight. So uh, when I was 29 years old, um, I realized I was screwed. I had no way to God except through Jesus Christ. And uh, I'd heard, I was told that Jesus died on a cross, was buried, and rose again for me to pay a penalty that I owed. And I believed it. And so I asked him to come into my life. But I had no assurance that that actually transpired. <laughs> and so every so often I'd just say that prayer again, hoping that maybe one time I'd say it right or I'd believe it enough and I would feel forgiven. One day I'm at work, I'm talking to a a friend and the subject of the Bible comes up, which was odd at work. Uh, He said he read his Bible every night. I said, you read your Bible? Nobody reads their Bible. You just keep it in your house in case you get attacked by demons. Like Nobody reads it, right? He said, I do. So I thought, well, maybe I should read it. I started reading the New Testament. And uh, it was alive to me. It was exciting. And something happened. I, I realized that I did not I didn't need to say the prayer again. He he heard me, and I was forgiven, and I was free. And it was the most important and the most amazing thing that ever happened to me. A Couple months later or so, um, I went to check out a church, do a little recon work, see where my family should go to church. And after the service, a guy walked up to me and he said, are you a Christian? And for the first time in my life, I could say, yes, I am. And he said, you want to go deeper? And I said, yeah, I do. He said, why? I said, because there's all these people in my life that don't have what I have, and i got to figure out how to tell them. You see, at that point in my life, I was motivated to tell people about Jesus. It was the only thing I wanted to do. Fast forward about a year and a half. During this time, I'm meeting with this very same guy every week doing one-on-one discipleship. And I'm learning amazing things, all about God and the Bible, how to study it. And he took me to a retreat like this, a place called Beulah Beach, which is outside of Cleveland, learned about the ministry, this E-squared thing we're talking about. It was, it was awesome. It was amazing. You know, you guys hear me all right? Is this? Okay. Um, they only give me an hour, Brett. How am I supposed to get all this stuff in? Um, so, so one day he says, hey, Todd, um, come back. Uh, take, take next Thursday off. He said, we're going to go follow up with some guys that were at an event. And so I was like, uh, okay. So I took the day off, went and picked him up at his house that day, and said, so uh, what are we doing again? So we're going to go to these guys' offices, and we're going to share the gospel with them. And I was like, what? You've got to be kidding me. This is a terrible idea. What, what are you talking about? Do they even know that, they're, that we're coming? Well, they checked a little box, said they need some information, so, you know, yeah. I was like, this is, how do I, how do I get out of the car while it's moving? This is a terrible idea. Kind of a big contrast, right? On one hand, I knew almost nothing except what Jesus did on the cross and I wanted to tell everybody. Then I knew all this stuff about the Bible and it was the last thing I wanted to do. One of the verses you're going to hear probably a lot this weekend, and I don't know if Chris mentioned it while I stepped away for a second, but it's Proverbs 23, 7. It says, As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Everything you do begins with how you think. In fact, one of the main reasons we have these retreats, retreats like this, is to help you learn how to think biblically. And so it's my goal uh, for the time that I have left, which because of Brett's question, it's a little less, (laughs) the time that that God would cause you to think about how you think about evangelism. And with that, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father... um, we know uh, that you are with us, and, um, but we also know that if you don't come and teach us, nothing of any value will transpire tonight, and so I beg you to come and uh, make known the things that are of you. I pray you'd protect all of us from anything that's not of you, and I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16, that's where we're going to camp out for most of our time, you might want to grab your little doohickey uh, bookmark and drop it in there, because we're going to bounce around a little bit, but that's where we're going to spend most of our time. Um, it'll be our home base. W- while you're flipping there, I'm going to share another verse with you. Uh, and that's um, Acts 17:11. Uh, that verse says, uh, "But the Bereans were more noble-minded than those of Thessalonica, for uh, they received the word with great eagerness, but studied the scriptures daily to see if these things are so." So I have one request of you tonight, that you would do that. That you would check what I'm about to go through to make sure it's right. Uh, It's your protection. It's also my protection. So um, to that end, um, instead of putting an outline in my little note section of the booklet, I actually listed every verse that I hope to get to tonight. May not get to all of them, but they're there for you. So you can go back and check it to make sure uh, that this is um, accurate. So we're, ex- we're going to be doing um, verses 13 to 27, but we're going to take them a little bit out of order. We're going to start at verse 21. And so um, that's where I'm going to start. So verse 21, Matthew 16. It says, from this time, From that time Jesus Christ began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, And be killed and be raised up on the third day. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. So you'll note in verse 21 that Jesus shares really the core of the gospel message with Peter. What's Peter's reaction? rejection. <laughs> he, he wanted nothing to do with the cross. He thought that was a terrible idea and not really how he thought the Messiah was going to save his people. Jesus' response is delivered quickly, emphatically, and his message is unmistakable. He says, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. Now, the Greek word for stumbling block is the word "scandalon." It's the word from which we get the English word scandal. It means um, a trap a snare, a cause of displeasure, a stumbling block. So that's not good. <laughs> First, Jesus calls Peter Satan. Pretty sure that's not who you want to be called by Jesus. Not, not a good start. And then he calls him a stumbling block. So Jesus has some pretty choice words about stumbling blocks in Matthew eighteen seven. which if you want, you can flip over there. It's only a page away. He says, woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. It's an Evitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. Now, in my Bible, my version is NASB, those phrases end in an exclamation point. So a very emphatic statement. And I'm pretty sure that Jesus now has Peter's undivided attention. So the question is, why is Peter getting laid out? Well, the answer, I think, is found in the back half of the verse. For you're not setting your mind on God's interests but man's. I'm not sure what that means. King James Version says, you savorest not the things of God, but the things of man. Not helping a lot. So one of the tricks you do when you learn to study the Bible is you look at the Greek word, the, the original language, and see if maybe that can help. So I looked up the Greek word for setting your mind or savoring. And that word is phroneo. That word means to interest oneself with concern and obedience. To set affection on, to mind, to savor, to think. Now I'm not very bright. A lot of times when I look up the definition, I have to look up the definition of the word that's in the definition. So the word for savor, I had to look that up. The English word savor means to taste and enjoy completely, to have experience with pleasure. The issue for Peter is his thinking. He's focused on man's perspective, man's interests, his own concerns, his own comfort, Now, at this retreat, you're going to hear phrases like temporal thinking, or thinking according to the flesh, or thinking like a natural man. 1 Corinthians 2 calls it, thinking like a natural man. Proverbs 3 calls it, leaning on your own understanding. They're all the same thing. They're all thinking like an an individual man, thinking with our own truth system, like uh, Chris just said. Now, last year, uh, a group of us... um, decided to do a little book club, decided we would, uh, we would study Jerry's book, which is over there on the book table. It's called The Discipline of Delusion. If you haven't read it, I recommend it highly. It's a great book. <laughs> In the beginning of the book, um, specifically chapter 1, verse 17, Jerry states that everything that happens on earth is superintended by a spiritual reality that we cannot see without the scriptures and without the Holy Spirit. And that's what actual reality is. What we see happening in our life is perceived reality, the temporal. But actual reality, the spiritual, according to Jerry in his book, is anchored in the Godhead, and God, through the spiritual reality, directs, oversees, and manages the courses of human events, both large and small. On top of that, the spiritual reality is our home for eternity future. need a scripture reference for this concept. 2 Corinthians 4.18 is a really good one. While we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are unseen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are unseen are eternal. So as I said before, apart from the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, we can only think like a man. Because we can only see like a man. 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, God does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Put your finger in Matthew 16 for a second. We're going to flip over to Psalm 49. As you flip there, we don't have time to read the entire psalm, but as you flip there, I I would encourage, uh, let let me just kind of give you an overview. This psalm is the picture of the man who is separate from God. And he's trying to, he's trying to live forever based on his own thinking, trusting in himself. Now, the Bible gives us, as Christians, three main enemies. The first one is Satan, right? The second is the world, or the culture, or um, the world we live in. And the, the most dangerous, the most insidious, self. That's what this psalm is about, is the thinking of a man who's trusting in himself. Now, God's reaction, or his thinking on the matter, is found in verses 7 to 9. So I'm only going to read those verses. It says, no man can by any means redeem his brother, or give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of his soul is costly, and he should cease trying forever, that he should live on eternally, that he should not undergo decay. He should cease trying forever. It costs too much. You can't pay for it. You can't can't do it yourself. Now, the psalm continues to lay out the results of this temporal, natural, fleshy thinking. And it's summed up in verse 20. Verse 20 says, man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. Now, the Hebrew word for understanding is actually very interesting. It's the word bene. It means to separate mentally or to distinguish. The idea is to understand the actual reality, the spiritual reality, in light of the temporal, the perceived reality. If you can't do that, you're like an animal. Your destiny is to be separate from God forever. Now, back to our passage in Matthew 16. Prior to Christ, as I said before, you can only think like a man. 1 Corinthians 2:14 says, "Natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, and cannot understand them." But when you come to Christ, something changes. Ephesians 1.13 says, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. God gives you the Holy Spirit to live inside of you when you believe the gospel. It's amazing. Jesus says the Holy Spirit is the counselor who will guide you into all truth. Now this is amazing. Now you have the ability to see the spiritual reality you could not see before. You actually have the ability to understand the Bible because the Holy Spirit is living inside of you. That's the good news. The bad news is, now you can think two ways. You can think according to the Spirit of God or you can think like yourself, like a man. My problem is I bounce back and forth between the two and that's a challenge. Um, And so I think that's what Peter's issue was and that's what we were talking about. So... um, let me stop for a second and see if there's any questions or concerns. Going once. That's my plan. No questions. I move on. It's beautiful. OK. <laughs> so as I mentioned earlier, that the biggest enemy for the Christian is yourself. One of my um, buddies shared a story with me that I thought was really interesting. He, he was a teenager, and he was um, studying to be a lifeguard. So uh, he's in class, and he's learning these things. And his instructor said, the biggest danger for the lifeguard is the guy that he's trying to save. He said, the, the person that's drowning struggles so mightily to save themselves that often they'll pull the lifeguard under, and that lifeguard ends up drowning. He said, so here's what you have to do. You have to get around behind him and let him drown a little. My friend's like, what? I'm trying to be a lifeguard. You want me to let him drown? He's like, no, no, no. Let him drown a little. He said... That person has to come to the point where he realizes he can't save himself, and then he can be rescued. See, that's what happens with the cross. The cross points out that there's no other way. In my little mini testimony I gave, I said I was screwed. That's what I meant. I have no way to get to heaven except through the cross. And that's why why the cross is so important. That's why the gospel is so important. That's the only way for you to get to heaven. It's the only way for you to find God. <clears throat> now, the same is true for the believer in Jesus Christ. Often, after being saved by trusting in Christ and what he did on the cross, we attempt to live out the rest of our salvation by trusting in ourself, by setting our mind or interesting ourself with our concerns and obedience to that thinking. The truth is salvation is not only justification. It's actually broken into three parts in the Bible. Justification is the moment that you trusted what Christ did for you on the cross and you believed it. You were then made legally righteous based on Christ's righteousness. You were saved. From that point on until the day you die, God is working in you through the cross, by the way, to make you like Christ. To make you holy. That's called sanctification. That one's being saved. And the last part, from the time you die, it's called glorification. When, when Jesus comes back, the Bible says in Colossians 3, verse 4, it says, When Christ, who is your life, is revealed, you will be revealed with him in glory. That's glorification. All three of those require the cross. There's no way to salvation, justification were saved, sanctification being saved, glorification will be saved without the cross. It's impossible. There's no way around it. Okay, so back to Matthew 16, verse 24. Starting at verse, yeah, verse 24 where we picked up. It said, Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself himself and take up his cross, and follow me. for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Couple of very important steps here. The Greek word for deny, that word is neomahi. It means to utterly disown, to forget one's self, to have a low sight of one's self and one's interests. It's literally the opposite of froneo, setting your mind on your own interests and concerns. Deny is to utterly disown, to lose sight of your own interests, comfort, concerns. That's what deny means. And then we're to follow Jesus. Now, the Greek word for follow is the word akulu theo. It means to be in the same way with or to conform wholly to his example. Now, Jesus is the greatest evangelist that ever lived. Not a surprise. There's a passage that we don't have time to get to, but I put it in your, in your notes, and that's John 4. Jesus is in Samaria, and he's at the well, and he's talking to the Samaritan women at the well. Jesus lays out his mission in Luke 19.10, and he's living out that mission in John 4. Luke 19.10 says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and save That which is lost. That is Jesus' mission statement. That is what he's here to do. This is what it means to follow Jesus. To share the cross with his people. To conform wholly to his example. To be in the same way with. To do what he did. To follow his mission. Matthew 4.19, you may remember, Jesus walks up to Peter and his brother Andrew, and he says, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Now, that's a promise. If you follow me, I will make you fishers of men. But it's also a definition of what it means to follow him. Hank Miltenberg used to say, you follow, you fish. You ain't fishing? Are you following? If you aren't fishing for men, are you really following Jesus? Because that's what it means to follow him. If you follow me, I will make you a fisher of men. The way to Christ's likeness is through the cross. And God designed our mission to accomplish for us what we need most, to die to trusting in ourself, in our thinking, focused on our perspective, on our comforts. That's what evangelism does. Every believer is commanded to share the actual gospel, the actual message of the cross, with people. Because when that happens, we die. Now let me explain. The message of the cross is offensive. I mean, you're going to tell somebody, you're going to be separate from God forever. You are separate from God right now. That might go over like a lead balloon. (laughs) It's a risk. You have no idea how they're going to react you don't know if you're going to lose a relationship or you're going to lose a tooth. They might just haul off and cold cock you. You might lose your reputation. You might lose your job. Some parts of the world, you might lose your freedom, maybe coming soon to a theater near you. It's a risk. Your only choice is to completely trust in Jesus. And when you completely trust in Jesus by sharing the actual gospel message, you die to trusting yourself. That's how it happens. That's how God designed it to make you like Jesus. Now, a minute ago, I explained deny yourself, and I jumped right to what it means to follow Jesus, but I skipped over an important phrase. If anyone will come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. See, in biblical times, if you're the guy carrying the cross, you're like dead man walking. (laughs) You're going to be executed. In other words, you're about to die. Take up your cross means get ready to die. To follow Jesus is to do what he did, to share the actual gospel with another man. And in so doing, you die to trusting in yourself. This is why the next verse says, if anyone wishes to save his life, he will lose it. But if anyone loses his life for my sake, he will save it. Paul explains it a little bit differently, but it makes a lot of sense. 2 Corinthians 4:11 4, to 14. I'm going to ask you to flip over to that cuz I think it's worthy of taking a quick gander at. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verses 11 to 14. 11 says, "For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake." so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So, death works in us, but life in you. This is the brilliance of the gospel. You are sharing eternal life with someone, and at the very same time, death is working in you, trusting in yourself. Death is working in you, life is working in the person to whom you are sharing it. It goes on to say in verse 13, but having the same spirit of faith according to what is written, I believed, therefore I spoke. We also believe, therefore we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. Now, believe in the Bible means to obey. That Those concepts are interchangeable. Reference for that is John 3.36. If you, if you have questions on it, come back at me, but To believe means to obey. So if you believe, you speak. You speak because every believer is commanded to share the actual gospel. We believe, therefore we spoke. But the cool part about this verse is knowing. This is biblical thinking. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise you with Jesus. That's a gospel truth. That's part of the gospel. You're going to be raised because Jesus was raised. When you know that gospel truth it explodes your faith it's it's amazing 1 Corinthians 1:18 says the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing but to those who are being saved it's the power of God to those who are being saved that's you that's the people that have already trusted Christ but God's working in them you're being saved it's the power of God for you so when you share the actual gospel You're evangelizing yourself. That's an amazing concept. The gospel blows your mind. Now, where does faith come from? Well, faith comes from God, right? It's a gift. Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes from hearing the message. And the message is heard through the word of Christ. When you hear the gospel, you get faith. It gives you faith. And when you share the gospel with someone else, it explodes your faith so that you can continue to share the gospel, trusting in God and not yourself. It's this unbelievable transaction that occurs, and it's the reason why God designed the mission the way he did. Let me ask you this question. How do you think it happened to Peter, who went from cowering, or actually denying Christ three times while Jesus is being questioned, to cowering after Jesus died, to later on in his life telling everyone he possibly could about Jesus and dying for it. What did Peter do from the time Christ died to the time he died? I would suggest to you the answer is sharing the actual gospel with people. That's what he did. And when it happened, he went from being afraid, trusting in himself to extraordinarily bold and trusting in God. And he he eventually died for it. But what happened was, he died to trusting in himself, and he moved on and became an unbelievable saint. My summary, I guess my conclusion is, we need to share the gospel. It's how God saves us, sanctifies us, makes us like Christ. Let me stop there for a second. Questions? Concerns? Okay. Maybe you're sitting here going, Folger is full of it. He's just adding this evangelism thing in there. It's not really in the verses I've heard people teach on. You know, if anyone seeks to come after me, must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Maybe this is all just a bunch of hooey, and I just added that in there to try and make it fit. I would refer you to the parallel passes to this passage, Luke 9 and Mark 8. They address the exact same exchange. We're not going to look at both of them, but I'd like you to flip over to Mark 8, verses 34 to 38. Just take a quick gander at that passage, which, again, is a parallel passage to this one. <clears throat> Starting at verse 34, I hear some pages flipping, so I'll give you a second to flip away. Mine's written here on my page, so I don't have to flip anywhere. It's a beautiful thing. <clears throat> it says, 34, And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Sounds familiar, right? Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me... And of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father and with the holy angels. Did you catch it? Verse 25. Whoever 35, whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. He's talking about sharing the Gospel. And then in verse 38, Jesus cares that we talk about him. If you're ashamed of him, he'll be ashamed of you when he makes his triumphal return. There will be consequences. If you want a little bit more color on the triumphal return and what's being talked about there, it's in Matthew 25. I don't know if anybody has questions on this whole concept of being ashamed. No? Good. Okay. Can't get a question to save my life. All right, it's good. You might want to take a look at Matthew 25, 31 to 34. Gives you a little color to this concept of him coming back with his father and with his angels and with the, the holy angels and what goes on there. Um, it's pretty intense. What he basically does is he, he separates the faithful, he calls them the sheep, he puts them on the right. He separates the unfaithful, he calls them the goats, and he puts them on the left. And he has some very distinct words about what he's going to do with the people on the right and what he's going to do with the people on the left. I'll leave that to your nighttime reading after we're done, since nobody asked me about it, so it's good. Are you asking a question? Itching your ear? Okay. Did we get it? Okay. <laughs> that little itch could be telling you something. I'm just saying. Um, oh, okay. Um, back to my point. <clears throat> there are consequences for not following Jesus. Flip back, if you would, to Matthew 16, <clears throat> and we'll get back at these consequences for a second. Matthew 16 Verses 26 and 27. We'll finish up this little section here. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and then repay every man according to his deeds. There will be a reckoning. There will be an accounting based on whether we truly follow Jesus by fishing for men. Gentlemen, that is a profound statement. I believe this is the core of what he's going to ask us on that day. Now, Paul describes this all over his epistles, specifically in 1 Corinthians 3, 10 to 15. Not going to go there, but it's in your notes there. 2 Corinthians 5, 10 to 11, and Galatians 6, 7 to 9. It's all over the New Testament. It's all over the Old Testament as well. They all say the same thing, that God cares... And you will be held accountable and rewarded for whether you did what he called you to do. Any questions? Any concerns? You're alive. You're with me. Okay. We will move on and back to um, verse 13. Verse 13 is the beginning of the passage I wanted to start with, and, and now we're going to read it. Um, we're going to read the rest of the passage here. Um, and go from there. So verse 13 begins by saying, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. There is a boatload in that passage, and we don't have time to go through most of it. So for the sake of time, I want to highlight just a couple things. <clears throat> but again, I encourage you to bury in it and look through it and study it. Verse 16, Peter makes the profound confession that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the son of the living God. He's the one they've been waiting for. Jesus is the Messiah. Note in verse 17 that Jesus confirms what we mentioned earlier. That's a spiritual truth It was revealed to him by God. So when Jesus says, you're blessed, it's not because he figured it out. It's because he's the recipient of a gift that can only be given to him directly from God. Amazing, right? Verse 18, he says, I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. I think this verse is a source of confusion for a lot of Christians I'm going to skip over that part unless somebody's got a question for me. Do you have a question? No. More itches. Uh-oh. <laughs> Ken. So I've always been. Con- is this Oops, so. So I've always been confused by the rock. Is it is Peter the rock, or is Peter's statement and what Christ said of Peter the rock upon which he's building, and Christ is that rock? Great question. So. I'm going to share my conviction and my interpretation of what I think this is saying. I do not believe that Peter is the rock. Rather, that the rock on which the church will be built is that Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Yes, it's true that Jesus changes Simon's name to Peter, Petros. That that means stone. Later on it says, on this rock, the word is petra, which is a lard rock or bedrock. Not to mention, just a few verses down, Jesus calls Peter Satan. Peter then denies Christ three times. And he cuts off Malchus's ear. Or actually, before that, he denies him. He cuts off Malchus. Then there's all these other things that go on. He, the next chapter after this one, he, the transfiguration, he goes up to this mountain and then... Moses and Elijah appear, and Peter's like, oh, this is awesome, we're going to build these tents, it's going to be great, he's just, just spouting off all kinds of stuff. Later on, Paul has to oppose him to his face because he's drifting back to the Mosaic law, right? He's a bit of a train wreck, if you want to, if you want to know the truth, right? And, and again, that's not the biggest reason why I think Peter is, is not the rock. Because if you were to ask Peter who the rock was, He'd tell you, it's not him. How do I know that? Because he said it. 1 Peter 2, 4-8 to eight, says, As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. He's talking about Jesus. Jesus is the cornerstone. Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 3. He says, I'm building this foundation, and any other builder can't build on anything but this foundation, and guess what? The foundation is Jesus. That's my conviction. I don't want to be dogmatic. I encourage you to study it and look it out. Answer your question? Okay. Okay, beautiful. Thank you. That's not what I really wanted to get to, but thank you for asking. Um, what I really want to get to is verse 19. Now, I confess to you, I never really understood this verse, but as I was preparing for this talk, something struck, jumped out at me. And um, again, I encourage you and I couch it with I don't have any, um, I don't want to be dogmatic and say that I, I for sure am right. I want you to study it for yourself. But it, it says this it says, I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. I believe the keys to the kingdom of heaven is the gospel message itself. Note, in verse 19, Jesus says, I will give you the keys. And then in verse 20, Jesus warned them not to tell anyone he was the Christ. Why? Because he hadn't given them the keys yet. In verse 21, it says from that time on, he started telling them the gospel. It's great information that Jesus is the Messiah. It's amazing. It's the rock. It's the worst the church was built. But the power is found in the gospel. That's the keys to the kingdom. That's that's my take. Now, let me just, I lost my place, and that's okay, because that happens um, a lot, actually. Um, Let me explain why I think that, maybe I'm going to say it later. Who knows? Yeah. I believe the gospel message. Okay. So it, it took, so okay, so I will give you the, the, the gospel. He had not given it to him yet, so don't tell anybody yet until I give it to you. Now, <clears throat> even when he tells them, what's Peter's reaction? Rejection. So even though he told them, I can't give you something until you take it. I have not given something to you until you receive it. He hadn't received it yet, so they weren't ready to, to share the gospel truth. Okay. So put a pin in that for a second. We're going to come back to it in a minute. So what's all this loosing and binding business all about? The rest of this verse talks about. Now, I don't want to go all Greek scholar on you, because I certainly am not a Greek scholar. But in my Bible, it shows the verb tense, which is actually very helpful. So in this case, um, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That shall be bound and shall be loosed are the perfect passive participle. The perfect tense is completed in the past with the continuing results. Shall be bound doesn't sound like completed in the past. It sounds like future. But my Bible also has an alternate translation. Instead of saying, shall be bound in heaven, it says it can also be translated, shall have been bound in heaven, shall have been loosed in heaven. That sounds more like completed in the past with continuing results. So I looked at the Bible, in Bible Gateway, that cool website, they have the NASB 1995 version, and it says, that version says, shall have been loosed, meaning that anything you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and anything you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Meaning, when you share the gospel with someone, and someone is loosed from the bonds of their sin, it will have been done by God in heaven, not by you. In other words, you're not loosing anything. God's doing it, which lines up right with, I will build my church. On this rock, I will build my church. Right? Does that make sense? Okay. Now, I've heard other people teach this passage differently, uh, as if to say, whatever you decide you're going to loose, God's just going to do what Todd said. Or whatever you decide you're going to bind, just God's going to do it. I I think this is teaching just the opposite. When someone gets loosed, God did it. Not you. Not to say that the keys are not powerful. The keys to heaven is a powerful thing, no doubt. I mentioned earlier, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. But you know in the Bible, there's, only, there's, there's a ton of things that God made and did that were powerful talks about this hurricane or tornado that tears down the house of Job. Powerful, right? Job also talks about the Leviathan. Don't even know what that is, but it's big and powerful. The behemoth. That's pretty big. That's pretty powerful. None of those things are described as the power of God. Only one thing. The gospel. I was mentioned there in 1 Corinthians um, 1. How um, How about Romans 1, 16 and 7? I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for the salvation of all who believe, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from first to last, from faith to faith. What's this first to last? It takes faith to believe the gospel to be justified. It takes faith to believe the gospel to be sanctified. It takes faith to believe in the gospel to be glorified from first to last. It's the power of God. So the amazing thing is, He didn't just give the keys to the kingdom to Peter. He gives them to every believer. The keys to the kingdom aren't just going to him. They're going to you. A verse we're probably going to get to later is 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19, which Paul Paul lays it out this way. He says, Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. I submit to you that is E-squared that Chris was talking about, the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he's committed to us the word of reconciliation. What the heck is that? It's the keys to the kingdom. It's the source code that unlocks the shackles that keep people from seeing the actual reality. It's the gospel. It's the power of God, and he gave it To you. Jesus said it this way. He says, But you will receive power, you know what that is, when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You will receive power to be my witnesses. That's exactly what we're talking about. He gave you the keys. So the question is, why don't we share the gospel? Why aren't we all out there doing it? We have the keys to the kingdom of heaven in our hands. Why? Now, I can't speak for you, but I can speak for myself. And the answer is the way I think. Did you have a question? I was just going to say one word, fear. 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 Yeah, Yeah. that's the answer. Good answer. Yeah, and and I I would say it a different way. I'd say the way you think. You're thinking like a man. You're afraid, right? Let me give you some of my thoughts. These are some of the thoughts that I have when evangelism opportunities seem to come my way. I think I don't have the gift of evangelism. I'm not comfortable talking to people about sensitive topics like that. I don't know enough. I'm not sure what to say. I can't figure out how to take a regular conversation and shift it to a spiritual conversation. The day the guy who discipled me asked me to go tell people the gospel, I had lots of other thoughts. You know what my thoughts are? I'm a sales guy. We're gonna go into a building and we're gonna tell people about Jesus. My first thought was What if they kick me out of this building and I can never sell to anybody else in this building again? Or what if they call my boss and I get fired and I lose my job? That's not good. That's super spiritual thinking on my perspective. Beautiful. (laughs) Do you notice how many times in those statements I said I? I don't have the gift of evangelism. I don't, I'm not comfortable talking to people. I could lose my job. I could get in trouble. I, 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 I. That is Setting my mind on the things of man. That's thinking about my own comfort, my own perspective, all of that stuff. That is my problem. And Jesus said, that kind of thinking makes me a stumbling block. And woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. Fact is, all those things I said are actually true about me. I'm not good at talking about to people. I'm not good at confronting people. I don't know enough I'm not not really good at any of this stuff. And that makes me the perfect person to share the gospel. That actually checks all the boxes to give me a perfect resume for sharing the gospel. 1 Corinthians 1, 27, and 28 says, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen. The things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are. I am not good at any of these things. But that makes me the perfect person to share the gospel, because the power is not in me, it's in the message. So all those thoughts about why I shouldn't do it should actually be the things that are the reason I should do it. I don't know how we're doing for time. I don't have a clue. Anybody know how much time we got? Okay, okay. So I'm going to give you a couple more examples, and then we can move on. Uh, Some of my terrible thinking. So prior to the pandemic, it would be hard for me to say that I'm not really around unbelievers. I used to be meeting with people all the time, but now myself and many of us work from home. And my comfort has gone up exponentially. I can literally sit in sweatpants and a collared shirt, and nobody knows. Bare feet, have a sales call. It's a beautiful thing. I I, kind of like my comfort. It's a good thing. Um, we used to do a Bible study uh, on Zoom during the pandemic on Tuesdays, and it was awesome. You know, I would teach sometimes. It was great. Somebody else would teach. I get my push-ups done while they're talking and listening in. It was was so productive. It was beautiful. You know, I I thought this is great. One day, the guy's like, hey, we're going to get back in person, and we're going to meet. I'm like, that's a terrible idea. Why would we do that? There's people from all over the city. They're not going to be able to come. It's going to... Stupid thinking. Idiotic thinking. Because we go to this meeting and we meet in person and these guys at this Bible study get this. And so I'm watching people get picked off all around me. One day I'm teaching. I see a new guy walk in, sit down, like, okay. Talk to that guy. It's going to be awesome. So all of a sudden I, I get done. I look over. My buddy goes, so what's your deal? Well, I'm not sure where I stand with God and I'm not sure... What, well, you want to meet with me? Boom, it's done. I missed, I missed my opportunity. It already happened, right? It's really hard to do evangelism over a screen. But in person, you can have a relationship. You can get time. You can get to know people. God can do amazing things in person. But my thinking says, let's not get in person, right? I'll give you one more example. <clears throat> I work for a company that does, has salespeople all over the country, right? Twice a year, we meet for a sales kickoff and a sales summit in the middle of the year and we were doing virtual ones, which was amazing, because I just like sit there, and I'm done. I don't have to go anywhere. I get to be with my family. It's so cool. They're like, oh, we're going to do these back in person. I'm like, oh, I hate this. i got to fly somewhere. I don't to, can't be with my family. It's terrible. And my son, who's actually sitting here, <laughs> he looks at me and he goes, Dad, don't you think that maybe if you were with people that you could maybe tell them about Jesus? <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah that's right. So get on a plane I connect in Atlanta flying to Dallas and there's a guy um, in my row sitting next to me and I, I go to put my thing up in the overhead compartment he's like hey you're my seatmate <laughs> yeah maybe let me yeah I guess I am he's uh, he's like oh yeah he starts telling me his whole life story just just starts talking I'm like okay so he tells me about this girl and he met her and he loves her and it's amazing and she's an exchange student he doesn't know if he's gonna all this stuff so I'm like Okay, maybe I should tell him my story. So I share with him my testimony. I get done sharing my testimony, kind of a little version I gave you early, earlier, and he said, I'm not sure if I believe in Jesus. He's like, my dad's a Christian. He's like, I just don't know if I believe it. I said, well, there's this little book that kind of shows you where you stand with God. You want to go through it? I'm going to go through it here in a little bit and you'll understand what I mean. So I got to share the gospel with the guy. It was amazing. Had I not gone in person, but my point is my thinking is what gets me in the way of doing what I'm supposed to be doing. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pivot and we're going to talk about how to do evangelism. And somebody is going to help me, I hope. Did you guys pass out those? Okay, while they're passing them out, um, I need someone to be my. Oh, Trevor. Oh, great. Trevor. (laughs) We're going to do a little role play. And I can't wait to do it with Trevor because I know he's going to go easy on me. Um, so, so here's the deal I'm, while, while we're passing these things out we're passing out this little booklet I was talking about called Steps to Peace with God it's a tool that um, is what I like to use um, and I'm going to explain it in a second before I go there evangelism is not about having the gift of evangelism it's about telling a very simple story it's not about converting anyone because you couldn't convert anyone if you wanted to it's something God has to do it's not about debating or arguing. It's simply about showing up and telling a story. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. What we're about to do is not the best way to teach a guy how to do evangelism. It's not. The best way to learn how to do evangelism is to find someone that's doing it and watch them. And go do it with them. That's what ended up happening to me. The guy that discipled me took me, forced me to go with him, and I watched him do it. And I learned how to do it. That's the best way. But Can't do that here, so we're going to do the next best thing, which is a role play. My friend Trevor, this is awesome. So excited. All right, I need a book, because I don't have one with me. Uh, Not yours, I need, oh, extras, beautiful, thank you. All right, so here's what I want to do. We're going to imagine, we're going to use our imagination, and we're going to pretend that we're meeting for lunch, and Trevor and I are talking a little bit about things, and life, and his family, and things of that nature. And what I want you guys to do is follow along in here. and we're gonna go through it. Before we do though, one last thing. <clears throat> the thing about the book is it's I usually say this to guys, it's written by a businessman, which is true. A guy named Bill Bright came up with this concept of steps of peace with God. It's filled with scripture, right? It's all scripture. I mentioned the power is in the message, in the not in you, but in the message. So a couple of rules. One, no preaching. I'm not here to preach, I'm here to tell a story. No side stories. No cross references, no explanations. As you can tell, I like to talk a lot. I like cross references, and I'm like, oh, the first couple times I did this, I'm like, hey, you know, here it says here, and it says this, and it says this. Instead of taking two minutes, it takes like a half an hour, and I lost the guy. Don't do any of that. One rule Winston's rule just keep reading. That's all you are to do. Invariably, a guy is going to throw a question at you. One, because he's starting to get uncomfortable, and he wants to get you off the scent. He wants to, he wants to say, oh, well, what about the guy in Africa that uh, you never heard the gospel? Or what about evolution? or what?" It doesn't matter what the question is. Your response is, that's a great question. I, I bet you if we finish reading this book, we're going to answer that question. If not, just come back. What you're doing is matador. Whew, let it go on by and just keep reading. That's what you do. Okay. So we're sitting here and we're having lunch. And... Um, McDonald's was an interesting choice, Trevor. I <laughs> um, haven't had it since I was about 13, but um, I appreciate I forgot my wallet, so yeah. thank you for bringing that. My that pleasure. was cool. Um, you know. Uh,
1: That's why I brought you McDonald's because I knew I was paying.
0: <laughs> That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, you know, we talked a lot about your family, which is really cool. There was a guy who um, asked me a couple of questions that really got me thinking. The first one was, if, if you walked out of this building and got run over by a truck. I know it's a dark and morbid idea. But if that happened and you died, what would happen to you? Where would you go? And I really thought about that and made me wonder. I'm wondering, what would, you, what would happen to you, you think, if, if you died today, right now?
1: I don't know. I guess uh, I'd go to the next life, whatever that is.
0: OK. Good question. Good answer. He asked me a second follow-up question, which kind of got me too. He says, if you get to the gates of the next life, whatever you just said, what you just mentioned, and, and God comes out to you and says, Trevor, why should I let you into, into heaven? What would your answer be?
1: I'd say, well, God, I guess I was a pretty good guy. You know, I lived a good life and, you know, I think I did enough to get there.
0: Yeah, good. that's a really good. Frankly, those were my answers as well. <clears throat> what I have here is a little book, and it's written by a businessman, it takes a couple minutes to read. And um, the whole point of the book is to do two things. One is, to, help you show, to show you where you stand with God, help you answer those questions. And then if you want to have a relationship with God, it shows you how to do that. Would you want to go through that? Just t- take a couple minutes. Sure, why not? OK, awesome. All right, one thing you'll note, I'm going to open it up and flip it over, page at a time, and I'm not giving it to him. I'm reading it. Little sales trick. You don't give the proposal to the guy. He looks at the back and tries to figure out what the cost is. Don't do that. Hang on to it. <laughs> You're in control, OK? <clears throat> okay, so it says step 1, God's purpose, peace and life. God loves you and wants you to experience peace in a meaningful, purposeful life, abundant and eternal. Bible says we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says, "For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life." It says, "I've come that they have may have life and may have it more abundantly." Next page says, since God planned for us to have peace and life with true meaning and purpose, why are most people not having that experience? Step two is the answer, our problem, separation. God created man in his image to have an abundant life. He did not make us like robots to automatically love and obey him, but he gave us a will and a freedom of choice. We chose to disobey God and go our own willful way. The Bible calls this sin, and it results in the separation from God. The Bible says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, through the ages, individuals have tried to bridge this gap in many ways without success. The Bible says there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. And But your iniquities have separated you from God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. So here's this picture. It says our sin results in separation from God. You have man kind of on this cliff over here on the left, sinful. And you have God on the other cliff. It says holy. God has provided. I think I might have skipped a page. This might have been printed incorrectly. There should be another picture in there that actually has, there you go, yeah, okay. Defective, it's all right, it's all cool. It says, why is it, this is all out of order, actually. So anyways, yeah, it's out of order, that's okay. So we're gonna skip a couple pages forward. It says, none of our efforts can bridge this gap. So men have tried to bridge the gap on their own, and it results in separation from God. So you'll see, philosophy, religion, morality, good works, all of them fell short, they don't get there, right? Our sin se- results in separation from God. Mm-hmm. But God's provided the only solution. Let's go to step four. Let's go to step three. Let's step it around here. Where is step three? Is there a step three? Wow. Step three. Yeah, a little bit step out of order. Four. We're going to go to step three. We're going to try and go in order. That's, That's all right. Crazy. I got it. God's remedy. Step three, the cross. Jesus Christ. Prov- We're going to make sure you guys are awake. <laughs> Paying attention. Step three. After two comes three. Jesus Christ provides the only solution to our problem. He died on a cross and rose from the grave, paying our sins and bridging the gap from God to man. The Bible says God is on one side, and all the people are on the other side. Jesus Christ, himself man, is between them to bring them together. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, I'm the way, truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. So here's the question. Are you here on the left with man, where it says sin, guilt, rebellion, separation, and lack of purpose? Or are you on the other side with God, where it says peace, forgiveness, abundant life, eternal life, purpose? Where would you say you are at this present moment?
1: Well, Todd, I think I'm on my way, but I'm not there. So maybe I'm kind of in the middle between the two.
0: Yeah, you're kind of hanging out. or Climbing up the other side, maybe. Who knows? Yeah, Okay. Let's go to step four. So how, how do we, how do we um, receive this, this gift that Christ gives, this one way to get to God? It says, we must believe in Jesus Christ and receive him as Savior. The Bible says, for it's by grace that you have been saved through faith. It says, not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by work, so that no one can boast. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It says, Behold, I, Christ, stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. So let me ask you this question. Is there any good reason why you cannot receive Jesus Christ, this gift he's giving you right now?
1: Yeah, I can't think of a good reason. I don't think I'm there, and I think I need to get there. So I probably should.
0: Awesome. Well, here's the thing this explains how you receive the gift. It's pretty simple. There's four steps. First is admit your need. That was really easy for me. You've done wrong things. Second is be willing to turn from your sins. The third is believe Jesus Christ died for you on a cross and rose from the grave. And the last is through prayer, talking to God, invite Jesus Christ to come in and take control of your life through the Holy Spirit. So here's, here's the, the point. We got a couple of Mormons before we have to be back at work. Do you want, it, do you want it to receive the gift now?
1: Yeah, let's do it.
0: While we're here, why not, let's talk okay. it out. So what I'm about to show you is a prayer. It's really not about the fancy words that are written on this page, but it's effective and it's helpful. So you have the option. You can take it from me and read it, or I can read it and you can kind of say it, repeat it in, my, in your own mind if you want to, whatever you want to do. How would you like to handle okay, it?
1: Okay, I'll just read it. Okay. Dear God, I know I'm a sinner and need your forgiveness. I believe that Jesus Christ died for my sins. I'm willing to turn from my sins. I now invite Jesus Christ to come into my heart and life and as my personal savior. I am willing by God's strength to follow and obey Jesus Christ as the Lord of my life. Awesome.
0: So you just pray this prayer, which is so awesome. The Bible says about what you just did, it says, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. To all who received him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So I'll ask you one more time, did you sincerely ask Jesus Christ to come into your life? Yes. And based on what these verses say, where is he now?
1: I guess he's inside of me now.
0: Yeah. Yeah. A couple other verses, these are some of my favorites. It says, and this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life. This life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus. So when we receive Christ, we're born into the family of God through this amazing supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. He now lives inside of you and this is what's called new birth. So here... Here's what I want you to do, last thing. I want you, it seems kind of cheesy, but I want you to put the date that this happened and your name. And it says, I, Trevor McDowell, prayed to put my faith in Jesus Christ and the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. The reason I want you to do it is you're going to walk out of here and be like, ah, it didn't really happen. That was just a bunch of hooey. That was weird. I don't think that. And you can look back in here and go, yeah, it did. It did happen. And then what I want you to do is I want you to go tell somebody, other than me, maybe your wife or a friend, what happened. Tell them what happened. And maybe even share this book with them. And then I want to meet with you next week. And I want to start something called one-on-one discipleship. Does that sound all right?
1: Sounds like a plan. All right, that's that's
0: pretty much it. Thank you, guys. Trevor, great job. Chris, I really appreciate the ones out of order, because that really kept me on my toes. That was fantastic. That's it. That's all it is. It's not hard. So here's the deal. like, You don't have to know a whole lot of anything If you can read, that would be very helpful. You don't have to. You can memorize the verses. But if you can read, that's literally all you need to be able to do. That's it. That's that's what it looks like. All right. Are we out of time, or do I have? Okay. I want to just share a couple more things before we close it down. I want to highlight three individuals in the Bible who were highly motivated to be involved in evangelism. The first one is found in Luke 16, verses 19 to 31. We're not going to go there. You can flip over there if you want. This is the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. I'll give you the summary of the story. So there are these two guys. There's a rich dude, doesn't have a name, and there's Lazarus, who does have a name. He's poor. He's begging outside the rich man's house. He's sick. He doesn't got anything. It's not so good. They both die. Not sure how, doesn't say, but they're dead, both of them. Jesus explains that in eternity the rich man is in a place of torment he he's in a like his tongue is on fire it's like burning all the time and there's a chasm between him and Lazarus Lazarus is in the Bible says in the bosom of Abraham he's hanging out with Abraham very cool so rich man looks across this chasm and he sees Lazarus and he's sitting there with Abraham going wow that's crazy. So he's like, hey, uh, Abraham, a little help. Uh, got a couple questions for you. First question is, could you send Lazarus over to me and dip his finger in the water because my tongue is on fire? It's terrible. I can't stand it anymore. Abraham says, sorry, dude. You you had something in your life. He had something in his life, and, and that's just the way it is. You can't do anything about it. Next question, okay. Can you send Lazarus back to my father's house because I have five brothers? and they have no idea what is in for them. They don't don't see what I see, and I need someone to tell them. Rich man is now very motivated for evangelism. He he, He can now see the spiritual reality he couldn't see before. He rejected before. Now he can see it, and he wants to tell people, it's too late. Can't do it. It's over. That's first guy. Second man, this is not a guy. It's a lady. John four the message the passage I referenced earlier John four seven to forty two again don't have time to read it but you can read it yourself this is Jesus with this woman the Samaritan woman at the well and Jesus starts talking to the woman which was a very interesting thing didn't happen she was Samaritan she was a woman he was a man and they were talking and um, Jesus tells her that he's the one she's like hey you want some water he goes if you knew who you were asking, you would have asked me for living water, and I would have given it to you, and you would have lived forever. And she's like, what? What's going on? And he explains that he's the Messiah. He is the Messiah. This woman leaves the water pot, which is the reason she walked out in the hot sun to get, to get uh, water. She leaves it there and just runs back to her city, And she tells everyone who will listen, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. This is the Christ, right? This has got to be him. Come see him. You've got to come see him. Verse 39 in that same passage, it says, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of her word. They came to Jesus and many more believed. She was motivated and it says it was effective. She didn't know anything except what she just learned about Jesus. He's the Messiah. She came and told everybody and they believed in him because of her word. Why was she motivated? I would suggest to you it was because she was thinking about the things of God. She was setting her mind at what was true that God revealed to her. David said, taste and see that the Lord is good. This was my experience when I first tasted the sweetness of the gospel. I wanted to tell everyone I knew. OK, last guy. Last guy is Paul himself. Now, Paul understood that the gospel is not only for the lost, but he's for the saints. And a lot of these letters he wrote, Romans and Galatians and 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, he was writing to believers. And he said, I'm eager to share the gospel with you, the believers. And, and so he understood that. But in 2 Corinthians 5, 10 to 11, he understood another spiritual truth, that on Judgment Day, we will absolutely care whether we decided to share the message of the cross with people that God put in our path. It says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each man may become recompense for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Listen to this, the next verse. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. He got it. He was motivated by a spiritual truth to tell people about Jesus. I will, I've never been the first person in a retreat, so this is like weird to me. I would suggest to you that over the next, you're gonna hear a lot of teaching and it's gonna be rapid fire and your mind's gonna be spinning. I would suggest to you, a lot of you are gonna be really excited about what you hear. It's it's gonna set you on fire and that happened to me. And when you go back from here, um, there's going to be a temptation for you to swing back over to your natural way of thinking the way you thought. And what I would suggest to you, the only remedy is to get in this book. Get with a guy, have him show you how to study it, how to grow, how to do discipleship, and have him show you how to tell other people. That is the best antidote to natural thinking and thinking the way you are. I'm going to close with this, John 4, 34. Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. Jesus savor the things of God, understanding that his will was the most important thing. So what was the will that he was talking about? I would suggest to you, based on the context, he's talking about telling people the message of the gospel, what he was about to do. That was the will he was savoring. He says, look around you. The fields are white for harvest. That's it. Thanks for your time, guys. Appreciate it.